I'm really um, humbled and excited and thrilled to introduce our, our preacher this morning. And he's a dear friend of mine for a couple reasons. Uh, he's from Tallahassee, Florida, and shares um, the common vocation with me of how to navigate a love for the Seminoles and this acquired identity as a Duke fan uh, as well. And I think he navigates that generally well, not super well at an NC State football game. Uh, but uh, my friend Mike, um, I, we became friends in uh, Divinity School at Duke. Um, we took a, a church planning and, and evangelism uh, directed study together, and if you know what that means, it kind of means you make up a class and pay for it, and, and that's what we did. Um, and, and so it's really cool, though, to see um, how the Lord is using that several years ago and, and bringing us to this point where we're, we're planning, uh, we have planted and are planning, and the Lord is planning this church community and, and using a lot of those things that we uh, were coming to learn, and, and I consider uh, Mike, who, who does a lot of work with All Saints uh, Anglican Church in, in, in Chapel Hill in Durham, I consider him a part of planning Oak Church, uh, very much so, and his support and his prayer and conversations that we had and, um, and instrumental things uh, that, that are going into uh, this community. So uh, I also would consider him a part of uh, Oak Church because he, um, in our one of the very first things we did, the very couple first things we did uh, for Oak Church was we planted a garden and we had a, a pig picking cookout uh, that some of you, I, I met Marcus there, I think. And, uh, and Mike volunteered to sit with the pig overnight. And so I got there at like 6 a.m. and he and Don Taylor were in lawn chairs in the middle of the parking lot behind the church and had been there for several hours at that point. Uh, and we're just babysitting that pig. So uh, any type of person that can do that and preach, you, you want to get to fill this pulpit. So he's, he's going to come in a minute, but um, before that, I'm going to invite uh, my mom, Nancy, to read uh, our scripture this morning from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, living no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off from what had been near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a body, temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Amen. Bowing your heads, will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your our sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it is uh, a rare pleasure to be here at Oak Church. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to say nice things about your pastor, um, which is a real joy. Um, I've said this before, but I will commit it here to audio and probably have to retire it afterwards. Uh, one of the great joys of growing up uh, and becoming a, a sort of semi-functional adult is that you get to know people whom you admire and you get to spend time with them intentionally. Uh, and that is absolutely what I feel uh, for Chris. And by extension, for Oak Church, um, I do think of myself as kind of an auxiliary member. Uh, one of the great, the great pleasures of my life was getting to hang out with Don Taylor and cook that pig. Um, but then also to be able to support and to dream uh, and to tinker about the future of what, what is happening here. What you guys are doing uh, is an inspiration uh, and a real gift to this community. And I hope that you feel that. Um, so it's, it's really exciting for me to be able to be here. Uh, and I say all that because saying nice things at the beginning gives me an opportunity to kind of preach a little bit here later. Um, so Paul says this. He says, you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Paul writes here to the church at Ephesus, and as if you've heard over the last several weeks, he's also writing to us. We were separated. We were alienated. We were strangers. We had no hope. There were walls up all around us, walls of hostility. And then something happens. Uh, in a very real sense, there is an event that changes this reality. Jesus happens. Jesus verbs into the story. Where there's no unity, suddenly there's peace, and nothing ever gets to be the same again. Coming from Paul, what seems like a simple thing is, in this description, actually a profound shift. Paul knows the law, and nothing excites a good Christian preacher like the opportunity to bang on the law. Nobody is excited about the law. Paul comes from this world where the law is in charge. There are, in the Old Testament, 613 commandments. 
in the Hebrew Scriptures. And for an observant first century Jew, all of them are the foundation necessary to live a life of religious goodness. The law, and by extension, circumcision as the visible sign, at least for men, of what it means to follow the law, served as a wall to keep out the foreign and the unclean, to keep from contaminating the purity of Israel's commonwealth. Now, in this view, the law is a good gift. The law serves an important purpose. It keeps the sinful far off and at a safe distance, out there, over there. None of them are in here with us. This law divides the world into manageable categories. As Heidi Klum would have it, some are in and some are out. In this world, the notion of reconciliation between insiders and outsiders is hard to fathom. And we should pause here for just a moment to consider just how out the Ephesians were, just how far they are from what it means to be a faithful and observant follower of the law. The learned biblical scholars among us will remember Ephesus as it appears in Acts chapter 19. Uh, this is a city where Paul stops to teach and to preach to plant a church. It's a coastal city in Turkey, I don't need to remind you. But it's known for one major landmark. I know we all know, but what's in Ephesus is the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And by the time Paul turns up, it's already been destroyed and rebuilt three different times and has been a thriving center of idol worship for about 600 years. So this is definitely the place to come and preach about the foolishness of sacrificing to false idols. Uh, and Paul, as we know, loves nothing more than an opportunity to do that. So there's this dramatic episode recorded in Acts 19. Okay, I say dramatic episode, it's more like just a riot. Um, there's this dramatic riot in Acts 19 where Paul has been preaching the gospel and repeatedly reminding his hearers that idol worship is ruled out, that things made by human hands can never convey uh, the full weight of what it means to, to be and to follow God. He's stirring up the people by telling them over and over that idolatry is a sin. As you can imagine, this did not make Paul extremely popular in Ephesus. The silversmiths and the merchants the people who get money on the backs of idol worship whip the crowd into a frenzy so much that Paul's friends won't let him go out and speak to the crowd, while the locals decide to spend two hours chanting and shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, in a vocal show of support. Coach K wishes he could get that kind of passion into Cameron. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. The business of idolatry is serious business in Ephesus. So this is the world that Paul writes into, a world where threats to the local deity of choice are met with strong opposition and very, very overt threats of violence. This is a world that might do well with just a little bit more law, but a place where even the most devout followers of Jesus 
are never going to be able to be insiders like those in Jerusalem or Rome or other parts of the ancient world. In these ways, the Ephesians are actually not that much different than you and I. In a world full of religious options, in a city where idolatry is the best and most profitable show in town, Paul writes to remind the faithful that the law that would make them second-class citizens in the kingdom has no hold. Christ has crossed every frontier and border, the divisions between women and men, Jew and Greek, insiders and outsiders, have all been wiped out. We are not much better than the first hearers of this letter. We're not the people we need to be in order to keep the law. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not faithful enough. We are just like the Ephesians who stood in the streets, spending hours chanting about the greatness of their God. We build temples to the things that we love the most, to the things that bring us comfort, and then we build literal as well as symbolic walls around them. Our possessions, our way of life, our secret fears and our unspoken desires, our dreams, our children, our families. Sometimes even whole communities get walls around them. We build them for many reasons, not least of which because they make us feel safe in a world that exists beyond our control. Jesus is one of those things that we cannot control. Jesus himself is on the loose. The scandal of the resurrection is that when we go to the tomb, the body isn't where it's supposed to be. Dead men don't just get up and walk around and then go make breakfast for their friends. But Jesus, ever since the resurrection, has been here and there reaping salvation where he's sown the word. And he can't be controlled even by us, the good and faithful religious people, because he refuses to accept the divisions that we make so easily. As Paul writes, the reconciliation of God will not be limited by our walls. I say this conscious of being an Anglican clergyman in what is at least nominally a Baptist congregation. I am a transgressor in your midst. Uh, this is what it means to try to live a gospel life, where the walls don't make any difference, where the branding isn't actually the thing that's most important. Christ has reconciled all men and women with God. Even before you knew what had been done for you, the impossible became possible. We were once outsiders, outside the chosen family. We were strangers and sinners and aliens. We had no hope. And now we've become members of one family with a whole lot of people we might not have chosen if God had given us a chance to pick them out. At one time, we were all distant from the truth of salvation. We were as far as righteousness as possible. In our ignorance, we believed ourselves to be wise. We thought we could be good people who could live lives of moral consistency and general decency. 
that by doing so we could live up to the requirements of the law. But if such a thing is possible, surely enlightened and thoughtful people that we are, we could manage it. Grace in that sort of mindset is for other people. Grace is for people who aren't good enough, but maybe we could be. We can surely try. As much as anything, that seems to be what it means to live in our modern world. The sense that we're not good enough now, but we can work toward it eventually. To be faithful, we have to acknowledge that all of our work in this direction is ultimately fruitless, apart from the graceful intervention of God. In fact, it seems pretty clear that when we decide the best way to save the world is for us to simply do it ourselves, we're missing the point completely. Jesus came and preached peace to the insiders and the outsiders, to the winners and the losers. And in doing so, he modeled for us a new way of living in the world. He created one thing out of the many. This is the thing that grace accomplishes that nothing else ever could. The love of God calls and names a whole new people. The people who follow a savior who thinks that walls are made for breaking. We call this people the church. The American poet Robert Frost said it best. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. I think that thing is the Holy Spirit. I think that thing is God. I think that thing is Jesus. Christ is the one who is sent by God to break our walls down. With a sledgehammer in one hand, he does not love our walls. And with the wreckage of the old world still littered around us, we're being built into a new thing on a foundation of word and deed so that the peace of the kingdom of God can come. So that the reconciliation that we long for the peace that we so desperately need can be birthed in a new community among us. That is what we think is happening when we gather together as the church. We think that the peace of God is breaking out. We think that the coming reign of the kingdom can happen even among us here in Durham. And that begins, that amazing thing, starts with Jesus bringing together all of us under one banner. The reunion of humanity is the beginning of the end of our divisions and the creation of that new household Paul speaks of, where the Spirit dwells. Jesus came and preached a peace that started not just with an axe laid at the root of the trees, but with a sledgehammer laid at the base of every wall. Now, Paul writes that through Jesus, we have access to the Father in one spirit. This is the extent of the hospitality of God. It is complete. It calls us to be imitators of that kind of love for the other, the alien, and the outsider, because we are the other and the alien and the outsider. That is, of course, the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people characterized by our love, but bound as we are by sin and selfishness and willfulness, it is almost impossible. 
which is why we have to acknowledge that we can't do it alone, either apart from God or apart from one another. You've heard it said before, there are no solo Christians. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and family members and best friends and mentors and better women and men than we could ever hope to be, we're called to share the peace of God as equals. We're called to come to this table and eat the meal that God shares with us that demonstrates his peace. We do this in remembrance of him who called us brothers and sisters and friends. Now, the walls that Christ has to break down are not just the walls that divide us from one another. They're also the walls that keep the church from reaching past her own front door. They're the walls that keep each of us from knowing one another as we need to be known. They're the walls that keep church time from interfering with real life time and vice versa. And to that, I think Paul says if, that if you believe, you can enter the presence of the living God and trust that this will not lead to massive disruptions in how you live other aspects of your life, you are wildly mistaken. Whether we will it or not, the kingdom is coming among us. And we are following a God who breaks down our walls so that something better can be made of them. This is a good and a terrifying experience. We build our walls mostly for very, very good reasons. We put them up because of our fear or our pain or our loneliness, and we keep them because if they're untouched by grace, they're remarkably effective. They keep us safe from the sting that can come from being truly known and inviting others to share our lives. The smashing of our walls may require giving up our comfort and our security. And it may ask us to trust that God and our fellow travelers on this journey are who they say they are. The writer Annie Dillard knows something about the fear that we rightly should have about taking down our walls. She reflects on this in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. She talks about her feelings about church and what might be concealed rather than revealed by our worship. She says this, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Annie Dillard captures here the sense that God can't be contained or limited. There's a vastness and a depth to the divine that we can only describe by analogy and that we can never, ever quite control. The polite and clean world of worship she describes 
does no justice to the story that we are living. Our God thinks that walls are made to be broken. He came preaching a new kind of peace and a new vision of the world, starting by remaking an old thing into a vision of something new and glorious and never, ever seen before. And as we draw near to this vision of Christ, the sledgehammer Christ, we're coming closer and closer to the wild and untamable capital T truth of who God is. The peace of Christ which binds us all together into one remarkable family of busted and broken yet healed, lost yet found, sinful yet redeemed people is a peace that passes all our understanding which is the only kind of peace that could be brought about by the cross and the resurrection. These are both the signs and the instruments by which Christ accomplishes the reconciliation of all things. Our story doesn't end on Calvary's hill or in that empty Easter tomb. It goes on and on and on. And we must acknowledge that all of our lives just like all of the lives of Paul's first hearers in Ephesians, are bound up together. Here at Oak Church and my good friends at All Saints and in Tallahassee and around the world, we are one community of radical hospitality and hope. We must learn what it means to extend the peace of God to one another and to those who are not here. We must learn what it means to be church for the sake of others. We must learn what it means to invite others to come and sit at this table and eat as equals in the coming kingdom. We must be rooted in love. We must be grounded in the truth. And we must acknowledge that we have all been freed by Christ. This is our warning. This is our advance notice. The kingdom breaks in like a thief in the night. Christ comes in like a wrecking ball. Our walls will not save us. And what are the signs of this coming kingdom? What is the peace of God? A huge feast where beggars and the poor are the guests of honor. The blind see. Lepers are healed. The dead are raised. There's a potluck supper every Sunday, and out back, a garden grows. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus describes the kingdom life this way. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The coming kingdom is the good news that a waiting world needs most of all. Christ has come to unite us as one. Like a ragtag bunch of has-beens and never-wers, like the unlikely heroes of a 1990s teen sports movie who suddenly learn to play together and never lose again. We are the Mighty Ducks. We are a people with a history and a future with a story to tell and a song to sing, with a hope in our hearts and the resurrection of all things on our minds, following Christ, our sledgehammer Savior, wherever he goes.
Pray with me. Lord God, teach us what it means to be a people surrounded by broken walls. Call us to live lives of radical hospitality. Call us to be the prophets of the coming kingdom and to embrace all of these things with joy in the knowledge and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.